I'm so thankful to have been born to the family in which I was born and the community in which I was born and raised in the church where I was brought up because it, it really has guided my life ever since and these people around me who have affected me in such a substantial way. Welcome to this week's edition of First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and in a few moments you'll hear from our guest, broadcaster Max Armstrong, as we pay tribute to our farm families. Each week our goal is to bring you a guest who is gifted by God with a unique calling and perspective. We've been on the air now for five years with these weekly conversations, and they can all be heard online as a podcast through our website, firstpersoninterview.com, or on iTunes. And now another convenient way to listen or download any program is with our free smartphone app. Just search for First Person Interview in your app store. Well, only a few more days to Thanksgiving here in the U.S., and I wanted to do something this year as a bit of a salute to those involved in agriculture who provide such an abundance of food in this nation and beyond. And who better to talk about that than Max Armstrong, the radio and TV host of several programs reporting on agribusiness. I've known Max casually for many years and admired his talent as he advocates for the American farmer. We connected our studios via Skype recently, and to begin, I asked Max about the farm he grew up on. In southwestern Indiana, you bet, about midway between St. Louis and Louisville, Kentucky, not far from Evansville, Indiana, and I feel so blessed to have grown up on that farm. It uh, it made an indelible impact upon me and the, the people in that community. Well, I want to talk more about that. You're also the author of a new book, Stories from the Heartland, and we'll talk about that here today. Before we do anything else, though, I wanted to talk to you today because we're, we're almost at Thanksgiving, and... I've often felt that uh, farmers don't get their due, and we need to thank them, especially as we give thanks this year for all of our blessings. Let's not forget those who put food on our table. You know, and it's been a challenging year for some. We had excessive rains. We had flooding rains. Uh, It was uh, very tense for some of our farmers getting through this season. Uh, You will find that at about any year. There are always some farmers, it seems, that have to endure the challenges that that are thrown their way, but They've gone into this business expecting that to to some extent. Uh, uh, You know, as a farmer friend of mine in central Illinois has said, if it were so doggone easy, everybody would want to do it. (laughs) Yeah, it's not easy, is it? And it's uh, got increasingly harder through the years. Is the family farm still something that exists in America? Very much so. That's one of the most common misconceptions about agriculture is that corporate America has taken over the farms and there are no more family farms. Well, it just isn't so. In actuality, 97% of the farms in the United States, let me underscore this, 97% are family-owned. Wow. Now, in many instances, it'll be a mother, father, son, and a daughter in combination. They may have incorporated, indeed, for tax purposes— But it is a family farm. It is probably much larger than the one on which I grew up in southern Indiana. In many instances, will be thousands of acres because Mm -hmm. of the scale that is necessary today. But it is still family-owned and operated, Wayne. Yeah. I drove through uh, downstate Illinois a few weeks ago during harvest time. And boy, the dust was flying from the bean harvest and the combines were going. And it just was such a beautiful picture to see all those farmers at work. And I know it's hard work, but... You know, driving down the highway watching them, it it was a pretty sight. It's one thing that I have enjoyed so much about the social media is the opportunity to uh, eavesdrop on these folks in the cab because of what they are doing with their smartphones. And many of them 
addressed exactly what you were talking about. They took pictures at uh, at uh, sunset, for example, and we had some beautiful sunsets across the heart of America. Actually, I think some of the forest fires up in Western Canada at times during this season have enhanced sunsets in the Midwest and the Plain States of the United States. But the, the harvest sunsets were beautiful, and it is a, a wonderful feeling to be bringing in that crop, the culmination of all of the effort that you put in and the investment that you, that you made. And in some instances, the yields are not as what you uh, what you would have expected. And in other instances, they exceeded expectations. Yeah. But listening to the comments, watching the comments in the social media from the farmers addressed exactly what you said. It's, it's just a wonderful time and indeed a, a time of Thanksgiving. Well, it wasn't so wonderful for a couple of friends of mine out in Oquaka, Illinois. Bill and Dan Alleman, they were out in that combine when it caught fire. And uh, you know what it's like to fight a fire. You've been a, a volunteer fire guy for some time. But, uh, boy, that was kind of a scary moment. There is a little bit, uh, I think, maybe one chapter devoted to combine fires in my book. Because when I was in junior high, the combine on our home farm in Indiana caught fire. And my Uncle Frank was driving it at the time. He didn't have a fire extinguisher, and it was a very helpless feeling. Now, that was decades ago. The combines were more antiquated. But guess what? They still burn. And they are a very hot fire when they burn. You can get an accumulation of dust and you can get that grease buildup and just a little bit of a spark. And then in the dry fall days, such as we had this autumn in a wide expanse of the heart of America, it's a tinderbox dryness out in that field. So when the combine catches fire or if there's a spark that comes off of that fire and you have a wind coming across there, the whole field can burn and even endanger buildings. Mm-hmm. We'll get to some of the important stuff in a few minutes, Max, but I just I got to take this opportunity when I'm talking to you just to talk about the, the thing that fascinates me is the technology in the farm these days, you know, with, uh, I don't know, what do you call it, GPS and auto steer and all that stuff going on. It's uh, A farmer has to be a computer operator and, and technician now. Oh, they, they sure do. I, it was funny. I posted a photo of a farmer friend of mine, Lee in central South Dakota, and he was in his combine cab uh, enjoying some ice cream and cake one afternoon. <laughs> and, and I said, well, of course, he doesn't have to worry about a sticky steering wheel because he, he can be hands-free. In actuality, that cab has become an office, hmm. and, and the farmer can continue to work. He or she can market their crops. They can communicate via the social media, which is what many of them are doing, trying to tell their story. Mm -hmm. it, it is indeed one of the things that has been permitted by all of the technology. But they are able to know via, in some instances, drones we're now using on our farms. They're able to know better than ever exactly what is going on in that field and address any problems that have surfaced there. So ultimately, that keeps the prices down for us, doesn't it? It really does. It makes it more efficient for that farmer to produce the crops and gives us that abundance so that we have... Plenty of crops available to us. Uh, we haven't totally been able to insulate from that weather risk. You still have to have rain. And if you get too much, it can impair yield. But we've been able to indeed take away quite a bit of the risk of farming with the newer genetics, the newer hybrids that have come along. Yeah. Max, you know, on this program, we like to talk about matters of faith. And I'm sure you have to bump into people all over the country, farm farmers or ranchers that really uh, rely on their faith to carry them through. What are some of the things that you've learned along the way? They are, in fact, people of great faith, and I reference that in my book. Uh, everywhere you turn, you run into these, these folks. In fact, at times in the past on our television show, the old television show we did, we saluted a country church, mindful of the fact that that rural house of worship plays such an important role in the community. 
uh, bringing together the families there. And uh, I think of one church after another where I've been privileged to worship through the years. And I just know that those folks, of course, are so grounded out there. And they, they tend to bring their families up, of course, in that way as well. And it's just a wonderful thing to watch. I think of uh, a church in Champaign County, Illinois, that I know so well. Another one in Miami County, Indiana. And I just, I, you know, as I go across the Corn Belt, I've had the privilege to worship with these folks from time to time, too. And yes, they are folks of great faith, and they know that they must draw upon it uh, hmm. quite often. Yeah, and some of the stations I've worked with uh, in the last uh, few months, uh, at least one of them has received a wagon load of beans as part of their contribution to the radio station. So they're, they're giving people, too. Well, it's interesting you point that out. Some of them, in fact, are devoting a portion of their harvest. Uh, There's a Harvest Sunday, for example, in many communities where the the growers will get together and they will contribute something. Sometimes it'll be marketed at the elevator, then turned into cash for a cash contribution. Hmm. It seems like every year another uh, report comes through, many reports of a farmer who has fallen on hard times, whether it's health or some other issue, and and the whole neighborhood rallies to their support. I'm sure you've been a part of some of those. You know I have, but I haven't been a part of too many of them. And here's why. Farmers don't draw attention to it, Wayne. Ah. They don't do this to have somebody out there taking pictures. They don't do this to have a television station out there uh, doing a a report for the 6 o'clock news. And it's been frustrating to me, as you can imagine, as a farm broadcaster to find out about these two days later, three days later. I would Mm -hmm. say, why didn't you call me? (laughs) They would say, well, you know, that's not why we're doing this. But it is breathtaking. They're dramatic stories. They really are. When you see millions of dollars of equipment gathered in one spot at one time, and you know that all of those farmers who left their farms to come out and harvest this neighbor's crop in unison needed to be a home also. I mean, their crop is still standing in the field. It was still uh, possibly going to be impaired in some way or another by the weather before they could bring it into the to the grain bin. But they dropped everything they had going on. They would take their combines, their trucks, their wagons. The local farmer co-op will supply the fuel. The local bank often will supply the meals. Everything is put on hold until mm-hmm. this producer's crop is brought in. And it's it's breathtaking and it's emotional. Mm-hmm. Well, Max, coming up in the second half of our time together today, I want to talk about the stories in your book. But there's one more important issue to touch on here. You know, in the political world, we have red states and blue states. But in the farmer world, we have red and green. And I understand you're a red guy. I have to admit that, yes. I've worked with uh, both those folks, Case International and John Deere, to name the brands of which you speak. And we've done some stuff with New Holland also. And uh, then, of course, there there's the Lexian Combine. Uh, there's Massey Ferguson equipment. Uh, we're still blessed with many lines of equipment. But, boy, I still have the tractor that Mom and Dad bought the same year that, that they, they got me, Wayne. Actually, the hospital where I was delivered was two blocks away from the dealership where that tractor was delivered the same summer. So that old International Harvester Super H and I go a long way back. Uh, It's great fun talking with Max Armstrong today on First Person. Coming up, the second half of today's conversation with Max. Stay tuned. Last year, the Far East Broadcasting Company received over 2 million responses to its broadcast, reaching people throughout Asia and beyond. And the stories they tell of lives changed by the gospel and the new hope and purpose they have found in Christ is outstanding. When you visit firstpersoninterview.com, be sure to click on the FEBC banner. Find out about the daily devotional, How Shall They Hear, telling many of these stories. That's the FEBC banner at firstpersoninterview.com. 
My guest today at Thanksgiving time as we honor and salute the farmers across America, everyone involved in agriculture who serve us so well. I've got uh, Max Armstrong with me today. Max is in his studio somewhere in America, and I'm in my studio in uh, suburban Chicago. But Max, uh, I'm so excited about this new book of yours, Stories from the Heartland. I hope you tell your own story in the book, don't you? Well, I do grudgingly. I, the The intent was to not have that book be about me, Wayne. I mean, I I wanted to focus on the many unique individuals and personalities that I've had the chance to meet over the years, and I just feel so blessed to have crossed paths with so many interesting people, and uh, by accident sometimes to, to just uh, to fall into it. And uh, you know what? Uh, I know better than that. I know it was an accident. It was not at all. And it's uh, it's pretty neat to to see uh, the Lord's hand in some of these things that have uh, really brought me down this path, including bringing me into this career, yeah. because I'm so blessed to be doing what I wanted to do as a kid in grade school. Well, how did it start? What, what was your first job in radio, Max? Well, growing up on that farm in southern Indiana, I would sit in the closet and play radio. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> mom and dad must have been very concerned about that little boy. <laughs> we could have been friends back then. I tell you, that, I did the same thing. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not at all surprised about that. Uh, but uh, then I got my FCC license the same summer that I, I got my driver's license. And I went to work at a station across the Wabash River in southern Illinois. And I will tell you, it was the first time in my life that I missed Sunday school. Really? I mean, that's right. <laughs> I had, you know, I had, remember the attendance pens that would... Oh, sure. Yeah. I looked like a decorated general. Up to, <laughs> but mom and dad allowed me to work at that local station and I would sign it on on the weekends in the, in the wintertime when dad didn't need me so much on the farm and I would sign it off. But over the course of the morning, local ministers would come out and do their programs. They would be the only people I would see all day in the course of, you know, of a nine or 10 hour shift running that station. And so it really was a wonderful experience for me that way too, to, to, uh, to have contact with the ministers who were, you know, outside of my individual church and to listen to the message that they presented. And I, I had a full boatload every Sunday morning. <laughs> so it really was a little 5,000-watt station for you, huh? Oh, it was less than that. It was 500. Oh, okay. <laughs> at, at sunset, I would hit the plunger and take it off the air, off 1360 <laughs> on the dial, and coming in, blasting over the top of it was WSAI Cincinnati. Yeah, you mentioned getting that license. That was a big deal in those days. You had to have a license to operate a radio station like that. Not so much these days, but uh, that was an important step for, for young, young guys like you. It was for a kid. Uh, you know, there was no place locally where you could take the test, so you had to go into a big city, and we were going to visit some family in Michigan. And I said to Mom and Dad, do you think it'd be all right to go into Detroit and take my FCC test? And they said, oh, kids, study, and we'll, we'll get... Actually, actually, no, the, study, the, the story is even better than that. We tied it in with a trip to the North American Christian Convention where I participated in the Bible Bowl. Oh, okay. All right. Well, Boy. I was a part of the team, and that's right. We participated in the Bible Bowl that same summer, and uh, we we studied Luke all that summer, and I studied my FCC license and got my driver's license, and it was all in the summer of 1969. <laughs> that's a great story. Yeah, it really true. is. Well, tell me about some of the other stories in this book, Stories from the Heartland. I talk a little bit in this book about a, a farmer in Indiana, and it's one of those cases where he had to be helped uh, during a harvest season, uh, I think it was 20 years ago, when he fell from the side of a grain bin mm. and was paralyzed. And I, I, I found out about him uh, by way of a neighbor because they were going to harvest his crops. And I talked about it on the air in Chicago. 
Ultimately, the late Paul Harvey heard that same broadcast and talked about it on his show. Mm -hmm. And I eventually met this farmer at the Rehabilitation Institute in Chicago. I heard he was there. It was just three blocks away from, from my studio at the time. And so I walked over one evening after work and met him. And the thing that struck me about him was here he was at one of the weakest moments of his life, debilitated by this, this terrible accident, and he never once stopped smiling hmm. during the time I was in his room. And that's the way this farmer is. Uh, ever since then, every time I've seen him, he's smiling. And I tell his story. I tell Tim's story in the book because not only did he survive, he and his wife Sue on their farm in Indiana have been able to thrive. They have expanded their acreage. He helps run that farm with the, the benefit of a, of a straw. I mean, he has no ability, obviously, to, to move his arms, legs, to enjoy the, the freedom of movement, but still with the ability of his wife, and she's a tremendous lady, very strong, and some hired men. They've continued farming, and they've been able to expand. And once again, every time I've seen this guy, he has a smile on his face. It's, it's a great that? story, and I it's one that I really take joy in telling in the book. Yeah, it's got to be really humbling to uh, to watch people like that, huh? It is. Uh, and, and, you know, you look at them and you think, oh, well, you know, <laughs> how would I handle how that? How unfortunate for them, yeah. He obviously has missed some things by all means. But, of course, uh, of course. They they have uh, three grown kids, and uh, they've, they've got just a, a fantastic family, and uh, he's just a joy to communicate with. And uh, it was neat to write... Th- the chapter about him, and then he put some of it in his own words. Tim also wrote from his perspective oh, good. what this whole experience has been like. Good. Well, you have such a unique vantage point, Max. I mean, you travel all over the country and in other countries of the world as well. Uh, any of these stories in your book come from other countries? <laughs> yeah. It's funny you should ask because I got to go to 10 Downing Street. Oh, and it was a it was a great experience. Uh, maybe uh, maybe you'll remember Wayne back oh, around 2001. They had what was called the, the foot and mouth disease epidemic uh-huh. through the United Kingdom. Yep. And it had spread so dramatically, and they were having to depopulate the herd. And you would see on the evening news here in the United States these, these piles of burning carcasses. And they were concerned about it in the U.K. because it was impacting tourism. People from the United States weren't coming over to see the countryside because all they had seen every night on the news was flames and smoke. <laughs> and so I was invited to come over and uh, to cover the story. And I was pretty sure that I was going to get to visit with the Minister of Agriculture. And I was greeted one morning by this lady from the consulate. And she said, well, I have some good news and bad news. And she said, uh, the bad news is you will not be meeting today with the Commissioner of Agriculture. A- and I was aghast. I, I mean, I'd-, I'd traveled all the way across the Atlantic with the television cameraman. And I was just getting ready to blurt out, you mean you're not going to let me visit with the Minister of Agriculture? And she said, well... There's good news. <laughs> yes, you're not going to be solely with the Minister because the two of you will be going to 10 Downing Street. Wow. <laughs> and I said, you mean the 10? And she said, yes, yes, yes. So, so who was the Prime Minister? To, to see Tony Blair. Oh, Absolutely. Okay. And uh, there were a few of us invited uh, from the media. And I went through... The cameraman couldn't go. He had to stay out there by the ropes. <laughs> And uh, I went through that door, and the funny thing about it that I tell in the book, there was nobody there to greet me. <laughs> I walked through that famous door with the tent on it, and I looked around and looked left, right to the front, and there was nobody there. So I started walking down the hallway, and and I write about it in the book. It obviously That's was funny. not the right way to go. That's funny. <laughs> Do you find that farmers are pretty much the same world over? They really are, absolutely. And that's a wonderful question. 
I mean, it doesn't make any difference where you are. I, I was in uh, uh, Chile and Argentina last winter. I'll be going to New Zealand this coming winter. Uh, we've been in, well, I have, I have originated a broadcast from more than 30 nations around the globe, some odd places, <laughs> unusual places where you wouldn't expect me to travel, places like Algeria, Vietnam, the old Yugoslavia. Hmm. And truly, the point that you make is a wonderful one. Farmers are just tremendous, giving people everywhere you go in the world. But, uh, boy, it's, it's hard backbreaking labor for some when, when they don't have access to all the equipment and technology that we have in North America. In some parts of the globe, it is very much a challenge, and their productivity is impaired by that. And, and fortunately, we, in a land of abundance such as we have and enjoy here in the United States, produce so much that we can share with others. And mm -hmm. it's a wonderful thing because, uh, you know, it would hang over the market if we didn't have those markets overseas. So we sell a lot to the world, and of course, historically, and this hasn't changed, we give a lot of food yeah. to the world. Yeah. Well, Max, I think we have time for one more story from your book. If you want to pick out something just to tell us, uh, summarize that for us. We'll, we'll get a copy of the book and read it, but I, tell us the story for just a moment, if you would. I, I just write a little bit about the medical profession, and I, I'm i probably venturing into an area here, maybe where I shouldn't have in the book, but I have strong feelings about it, simply because I've I've been in offices where the the news isn't always communicated with empathy or sympathy. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's become mechanical, the... The uh, delivery of, of medicine in the United States, unfortunately, for one reason or another, in too many instances, I think, and this is Max Armstrong's opinion, uh, maybe just doesn't have the kind of caring feel to it. And I write about a, uh, a gentleman who, who runs a neonatal unit in, in Chicago and how he made a difference in our lives, how the contact with him impressed us profoundly for the rest of our lives. And you know why? Partly because he was a man of faith. And, and, and just in the past year, I, I wandered into a, a new doctor's office here where we had moved. And on that first visit with that physician, he said, have you found a church yet? And what a, what a thrill it was for me personally to know that I had found a doctor who not only cared about my physical health, but my spiritual health. Yeah. So you write about more than just farming in this book. Well, I venture a little bit far afield, but not too far. No. <laughs> most of it, most of it relates to agriculture and and certainly the people that I've come in contact with. Some of the broadcasters with whom I worked in Chicago, the legendary uh, Wally Phillips and Bob Collins mm -hmm. and, and Roy Leonard, guys who impacted my life so substantially and affected the lives of millions of people in mid-America through their broadcasts. Yeah. You know, yeah. you, you and I are so blessed to be able to open up a microphone and touch the lives of so many people. And isn't it isn't it a wonderful thing to, to be able to do? That really is true. I, I couldn't agree more, Max. Well, uh, you have had uh, a stellar career, and it's, you've got lots of years left, but uh, you just have to thank the Lord. I do, every day. And I, I, I point out, and I've told so many people, I'm so thankful to have been born to the family in which I was born and the community in which I was born and raised in the church where I was brought up, because it, it really has guided my life ever since. And you know, every day, every day, I'm thankful for that. I thank the Lord for the these people around me who have affected me in such a substantial way. That's Max Armstrong, our first-person guest today. His book, Stories from the Heartland, has just been released, and we'll put a link to that book on our website, firstpersoninterview.com. As long as we're in the mode of Thanksgiving, let me also take a moment today to thank the Far East Broadcasting Company for helping us with these weekly interviews. FEBC's mission is to take Christ to the world by radio, and they do that in nearly 50 countries as they proclaim the gospel, always in the local language. 
I'm deeply committed to the ministry of FEBC and hope that we are able to shed a little light on what God is doing through these dedicated broadcasters around the world. Take some time to learn what you can do to help by visiting firstpersoninterview.com and clicking on the banner for FEBC. Now with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for listening today to First Person. First Person.